Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On today's episode of Risk, you'll hear Dave Ross. And I especially wanted my dad to come because, you know, like, you know, you know what I mean? (laughs) Guys, today's episode is brought to you in part by Harry's at harrys.com. Listen, guys, do yourself a favor and get over there to H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com to save $5 off your first purchase with the promo code RISK, R-I-S-K. Harry's uses the highest performance, super beautifully crafted German engineered blades to give you a shave so smooth you won't believe it and at a fraction of the cost for what you would be paying for blades if you just go to the drugstore. It's ridiculous. Listen to this. They ship to you for free. You get this starter kit for just $15. You get a beautiful razor. You get three of these blades I'm telling you about. This moisturizing shave cream is kind of like that old-fashioned style shave cream, and it absolutely, I just can't get over how beautiful and smooth it makes me feel. You could be going to the drugstore and paying 32 or more dollars for just a few blades. I can't recommend Harry's enough. You got to go to H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Remember, the promo code is RISK, R-I-S-K. You're going to get $5 off. You're going to get your shipping for free. Go to Harry's dot com now and use that promo code RISK. Also, as you might remember, Chris Castiglione was a member of the Risk team for a long time. He created risk-show.com. And I've mentioned he created this class called One Month HTML. A lot of Risk fans took the class. They thought it was so easy to learn to code with those one-month video courses. Well, now Chris and his partner, Baton, have created an even more popular course, One Month Rails. One Month Rails is a series of bite-sized video lessons and step-by-step tutorials that teach anyone how to build their first web app, like a simple photo sharing app, in just 30 days. If you get stuck, there's always someone, a real person, there to help you out online. In One Month Rails, you'll learn Ruby on Rails 
HTML, CSS, Bootstrap, GitHub, and more. Over 14,000 students have already started building their dream app and taking their career to the next level. So what are you waiting for? Enroll now at onemonth.com slash risk loves you. Enrollment is typically $99, but if you join now, you'll get a one-time discount of 25% off for joining. And as always, you'll be helping to support risk. Again, it's one month rails, 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you'll actually build your first web app. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Hugh Masakela behind me now, calling today's episode Family Planning. These are three stories of uh, families uh, who kind of, you know, fucked up a little bit. Some in minor ways, some in bigger ways. Some picked up the ball after dropping it, and others just flat out dropped it. We're going to start with a story that was told at our recent Boston show by Tony Naj, who was a fan, Risk fan, who reached out to us when she heard we were coming to Boston. And it wasn't until after she performed that she revealed she had never been on stage before, ever. Never done anything on stage. <laughs> she kept that a secret because she thought I might cut her from the show if I found out that she was so inexperienced. But man, did she do a lovely job. And so it's a thrill to feature her. Here she is now at the Risk Live show a little while back in Boston. This is Tony Naj with a story we call Camp Commando. Okay, so the summer I turned 14 years old, my parents sat me down and they said, Tony, your mother and I are gonna send you to Hungary so you can learn Hungarian and connect to your Hungarian roots. And I thought to myself, wow, I really don't care about that, but I do know in Europe there is no drinking age and I can have as much beer as I want. So I was like, yeah, yeah, cool, yeah, I'll totally go to Europe, fine, great. They said, perfect, you're gonna go with your cousin Marta and your best friend Biddy, and the three of you are gonna have an adventure in Hungary. Cool. Oh, oh wait, there is one thing my dad said. After you do your language trip, you're gonna do a cultural immersion program in Transylvania. And I was like, dad, Transylvania's make-believe. 
it's not a real place. And he was like, that's Dracula, and Transylvania's where you're going. So I was kind of like, not that into that idea, and I was like, I don't know, Dad, I'm not really, no. And he was like, listen, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity, and your cousin Marta really wants to go to Transylvania. And I was like, okay. I mean, I should have known my parents were lying, because I'm pretty sure that no 14-year-old girl really wants to go to Transylvania. But I was like, okay, I believe you, because you're my parents, and why would you lie? <laughs> okay. So, at this point of the story, you may be wondering, why would you send your 14-year-old daughter to Eastern Europe, where she may get brought into sex trafficking? And that's a question I've asked myself for the last 15 to 16 years, but I think it's because my parents had me in 1979, you know? They were parents of the 80s. You didn't do things like care about where your kids were. They weren't helicopter parents. Like, for me, I put a helmet on my daughter when she's eating breakfast. I'm like, now you're safe, honey. With my mom, she would just breastfeed me in the front of the car and then toss me in the back and I'd just roll around with my brother. This is how things were done. So, okay, the three of us girls, we all went to Hungary. We had our program where we learned no Hungarian at all because the whole time we were just drinking beer and going to discotheques and hanging out with boys. The only Hungarian phrase I learned was, please don't touch my ass like that anymore. <laughs> so, okay. So we weren't exactly equipped for our cultural immersion program in Transylvania. So we get to Budapest and I say to my friend Biddy and my cousin Marta, let's not go. Let's just stay here and have fun and party and drink beer with boys. And my cousin Marta, who is a Catholic girl who can't lie to her father like I can lie to mine all the time, she said, no, Tony, we have to go. Besides, you really wanted to go to Romania. That's what my dad told me. I was like, what? I didn't want to go to Romania. I didn't want to go to Transylvania at all. And then Biddy said, what do you mean Transylvania? Transylvania is make-believe. <laughs> and I'm like, Biddy, that's where we're going tomorrow. So we decided, no, we're not going to do this. So Marta said, well, call your dad and tell him we're not going. And I was like, okay. So I got a calling card, all right, because this is 1994. Okay, hey, dad, it's me. So we're not going to actually go to Transylvania anymore. We're going to stay here. And my dad said to me, Tony, if you know what's good for you, you're getting on that bus to Transylvania tomorrow because it's an opportunity of a lifetime. And I started crying. And, you know, I tried the weeping thing, like, Dad, please, I really don't want to go. And then a Hungarian widow dressed in all black came and, like, she handed me some tissue. I was like, only this woman knows my pain. Like, Dad, we really just want to stay here. There's, like, this boy who likes me. I don't really like him back, but he likes me, and that's what matters. Please. And my dad's like, get on that bus. So, okay. The next day, we had to drag our suitcases. We had, like, giant suitcases filled with halter tops and Daisy Duke shorts. We were not really prepared for the Alps, per se. So we get to the bus about three hours late because we were really lost, and we were already not very popular because we'd been making these people wait. We sit on the bus. The bus starts going. We look around, and everyone starts pulling out snacks and water and stuff because everyone else seemed to know that we were on a three-day bus ride to Transylvania. 
We didn't have anything. We had nothing, nothing at all. We were like dying of thirst and like so hungry. For eight hours, we had nothing. And then finally the bus pulled over to get some gas. And Marta and I were like, okay, we're going to get out. We're going to get some Fanta or something. And we got out and we got some Fanta. And then we go back to the bus and we watch the bus drive away. And there's Biddy in the back just waving to us. <laughs> like Dinah and Alice in Wonderland. Just like, what's happening? You know, she couldn't tell anyone anything because we didn't speak Romanian, right? So then we had to chase after the bus. Two miles later, it was pulled over because it had a flat tire. So we got back on. And then that night, we had the experience of sleeping in an authentic orphanage. How do I know it was an orphanage? Well, the room of orphans, for one. <laughs> and then the other room where we slept, it was just like all these beds in a line, like Madeline, but there weren't enough beds. So then Biddy and I had to share a bed and just huddle in there, trying to listen to a Walkman in each ear to take the pain away, you know? The next day, we were on the bus again, still no water, still no food. We never got off the bus for another 48 hours. It just didn't stop again. I think about 36 hours into it, someone took pity on us and gave us some dried pickled cherries. At least I think they were cherries, but they did give us explosive diarrhea. <laughs> so I will never really know what I ate that day. When we got to the base of the Transylvanian Alps, we were then ushered into an authentic concentration camp bus. How do I know that? Because I've seen documentaries on World War II. This was that car. And they said, come, 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 girls, get on this bus. So there was these benches in the bus, and you had to kind of straddle the bench to straddle it. And then a Romanian nestled between my legs, and another one nestled up behind me. And then they, we like, you know, driving up the bus. It's like pretty wobbly. And they started singing Romanian folk songs, which we couldn't participate with because we don't speak Romanian, right? So we're just like, okay, this is going to be cool. We finally get to the camp, and this is where I learned that this camp is called Camp Commando. Okay, so like, who would send their daughter to Camp Commando in the Transylvanian Alps? Like, this is a question I can never really answer, right? So here we are at Camp Commando, and I realize we're not alone up here. There are 60 Romanian boys on a soccer team. I don't know why they were there. Were they doing altitude practicing? Don't know. But what I do know is these 60 boys were really interested in us because we were the only girls with all of our teeth. Okay, so they would surround our cabin and they would just make these like gesticulations, you know? And they would say, American girls, come out and play. So we stayed in the cabin for the first couple of days. <laughs> now, the other thing that was really confusing is that we had no idea what was going on. Sometimes we would wake up and everyone would be gone. And then they'd come back and they'd have like these deer as backpacks that they would just like put the skin between their arms. And then they'd like come into camp and make fun of us because we didn't know how to like skin a deer. We, had, we had just really didn't know what was happening. So the problem with Camp Commando is that they didn't actually think everything through. One thing they didn't think through was toilet paper. So there was no toilet paper. So we would use stale bread that we had for breakfast as toilet paper. And sometimes we would use the address of Romanian boys because they would often give us their addresses. And we would, that was actually a treat. We're like, oh, it's so soft. And it was like, it was pretty brutal. 
There was also no shower or um, any way to clean yourself. There was a room that had like a spigot and water would come out, but only for one hour a day. And we never knew what hour that was because it changed daily. So we had no idea. So we just like didn't bathe and we had like bread in our ass and like (laughs) pen marks. And then we were also like really fucking hungry because the only thing they fed us was stale bread, which you know where that was going. And then just like circles of unidentifiable meat. You know, it wasn't bologna, it wasn't spam. It was just like pink flesh encased. And so we were just like, oh, this is terrible. So we would often play cards with the Romanian boys and try to bet things so we could get something like a candy bar. And so we didn't have much to bet except for our our underwear. So we would just have to like kind of entice them. And I learned how to cheat in this game. And then I finally won a bottle of sherry from a six-year-old boy. And I'm like, I'm like, you guys, we're gonna be okay for another day. Now, the other thing that was really hard about Camp Commando is that, like I said, we were in the fucking Alps and it was freezing and all we had was our halter tops. So Biddy and Marta and I all had to share one bed and the way we fit is that I had to sleep with my head between their feet because I was the strong one. And we would, you know, they just, we would just all just like shiver, shiver together like sardines. So after about 13 days of this, I was like, we gotta get out of here. I don't know how long we're gonna be here. We gotta get out of here. And I saw this man, I'd never seen him before, and I went up to him, and I used my body language, and I said, get me the fuck out of here. Get me the fuck out of here. This was before twerking, so I was like really before my time. I'm like, out, I need to get out. So he, he's like, okay, I'll pick you up at four in the morning. And he was kind of pointing to his watch, four in the morning tonight. Why I trusted that man? I don't know, I was pretty desperate. I'm like, okay, cool, cool, four in the morning. We're with you, guy. So we tell this to Marta, and she said, listen, I'm really tired. I don't think I can stay up till four in the morning. I'm really tired, I'm really hungry. And Biddy and I said, it's gonna be okay, Marta. Go to sleep, we'll keep each other up. So Biddy and I were waiting outside, and then these two boys come to us, and they're these mountain boys. How did I know they were mountain boys? Because one of them had a shepherding stick, you know, with the hook. And the other one had ropes for shoes. (laughs) So I was like, okay, okay. And the mountain boys gestured for us to come with them. And we did, yeah, we did. Because we were 14 and we're like, sure, we'll follow these boys in the woods. Why not? It's totally normal. So we follow these boys in the woods. We hike about a mile until we get to this man. And he kind of had built himself a shack. And he had an open fire. And he was just kind of, you know, spittling meat. But it was like pork fat, just white pork fat. And he shared his meat with us, his pork fat with us. And then he would kind of like flip his eyelids every once in a while to entertain us, which was like really sweet actually. But I don't think that any human should see the inside of another human being's eyelids. So at 3.20, we're like, okay, we gotta go. And we took the Romanian boys' addresses in case we, you know, needed to go to the bathroom. We got Marta and we found this guy, this teacher or whoever he was, and he brought us down and he actually gave us Romanian cigarettes, which was super nice even though they made us vomit. And we get to the bottom of the Alps and then he brings us to his wife and they gave us a wheel of cheese and some more stale bread. And we got on the bus and then we went the three hour bus ride back to Budapest. And then we finally got to a youth hostel and we were so tired and so hungry. And we drew straws to see who could shower first. And Biddy won. 
And so there she was, and she was in the bath, and she's washing, and she's feeling really good. And I'm like, I really got a shit. I got a, I got a shit. And Marta's like, go to the bathroom. It's right there. And I'm like, and there's, and there's toilet paper. I'm like, I can't. Biddy's in the bath. I'm just gonna. And I look around, and then there was this abandoned courtyard beneath us, and there was like a railing. And it was abandoned because this is like post-communist Eastern Europe, okay? Like, I promise you, it was abandoned. And I just kind of like, you know, like perched myself like this. And my cousin just laid back and she's smoking a cigarette because now we like totally smoked. And she's smoking a cigarette and she just watched as like the poop just plopped out my butt and fell like 13 feet into the abandoned courtyard. And at that point, I knew we were women. So when we came back, I went to my parents and I looked them in the eyes. I said, why did you do this to me? Like, what did I do to deserve this? Is it because last summer, Biddy and I just smoked pot all day and ate cake batter? Like, why did you do this to us? Why did you send us to Camp Commando in the Transylvanian Alps? And my dad just looked to me and said, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. Thank you. This is Risk. This is Jose Gonzalez behind me now. And we just heard from Tony Naj at the show we did in Boston just about a month or so ago. Hey, if you would like to give a stab at that sort of thing, you know, Tony had never done it before. You might have never done it before. Maybe you live in Reno, Nevada or not far from there. On July 25th, we'll be in Reno. The theme is Mindfuck. So uh, if you have any stories from your own life, that come to mind when, when you hear that word, go ahead and email me at kevin at risk-show.com. Let me know what kind of story you have in mind. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Los Angeles-based stand-up comedian Mr. Dave Ross, who has been on the show before. We love Dave. But before that, we're going to hear from a Scottish comedian named Daniel Sloss, who got his start when he was super young. Uh, he came to the Risk Live show in Los Angeles and shared the next story with us. It's Daniel Sloss with a story we call Good Grief. Hello. 
The year was 1999. I have a sister that is uh, disabled. She, if we were to use a term that we use in family, she's full disabled. Like, fully all the way there. Like, nailed it disabled. <laughs> Just couldn't be more disabled if she tried. And not that she would try because she's disabled. So. All, 10 out of 10. Nailed it. Right. Uh, it's, she's got cerebral palsy. Cerebral palsy is just, uh, if you don't know, it's a, a condition which is basically, we use the term floppy. She's just, she's just floppy. She's no walking, no talking, but plenty of smiling and laughing that lights up a room. Just a big, ah, face. Very fun. Uh, but just floppy. Needs to be picked up, carried, all the sort of things. And this was normal to me, completely growing up. This was my sister. I knew this is all I sort of knew. And I was very sort of aware. And it was, I loved it. It was, it was great. There were so many advantages to having a disabled sister that people don't realize. If you go to Disney with a disabled sister, front of the queue, every fucking time. Every fuck, just walking past people with fast pass, being like, suck a dick, motherfuckers. Mm, natural fast pass. So I'm going through. We always had a weird sense of humor about it because it was always fucking funny. Like, it was always great. I mean, she had a laugh that would just explode and just light up the whole room. One of my favorite stories, I was talking to my mother about this, was when I was nine years old. Uh, we're driving up to my grandparents. It was my mum and my dad in the front two seats and me and my sister in the back. And uh, the tire, front tire exploded. Blowout. And we spun off the road about seven miles an hour down into a ditch. And uh, we stop. And my mum turns around to check on us. And I am fucking livid. Because uh, I was having a nap and it was going very well. <laughs> And I've just been woken up, and we're not at Grand's, so that's fucking bullshit. <laughs> fucking wasting my time. And my sister's there, and she's just fucking smiling her face off, because that's all she knows how to do. She's joyous and laughing. That's like a fucking rollercoaster for her. She's, lo- she's like, are we back at Disney? No, mum fucked up. Um... <laughs> So we're both fine, everyone's fine, but we get out of the car, so dad sort of picks me up and makes me walk up the fucking hill. Mum goes out to the passenger seat, picks up my sister, and there's a man running down, he's gone out of his car, he was behind us, saw the whole thing, got out of his car, ran down towards us just to make sure we were okay, and he runs towards us, and then sees my mother holding my sister in her hands, and he just falls and collapses, and is like, oh my god, and we die of laughter. We... Yes. We're like, no, she's, it's okay. Like, it's fine. She can't be more disabled. It's fine. Like, this is the safest person to be in a car crash with. So we're, we're high, like, he laughs, we all laugh. It's all a very fucking good day. So that's the sort of relationship we've always had with the sort of uh, the same sort of sister thing. Now, still in the year 1990, uh, 1999, sorry, and uh, I was at school, it was cool, it was a Sunday night, uh, so the next day was school, and I was very fucking excited, right? Because this was the day the Edinburgh Museum opened up, and we were going on a school trip to the museum. And I was very excited, because I fucking love the museum. I want to learn all of the shit, and it's a day out of school, so I'm very, very happy. And then in the middle of the night, I get woken up by my grandparents, they're just staying down, and they're like, you need to go to your neighbours, uh, your sister's been rushed to hospital, which is very normal, she she'd fits every other night, and it's just have to go in and sort of get it all checked out, so I'm like, alright, so get my clothes, go across the road, get to the neighbour's house, jump into bed, fall asleep, wake up the next morning, 
uh, come downstairs. Fucking museum day. So excited. We're going to learn the shit out of Tutankhamun. Just going to learn all that shit. <laughs> Fucking going to lose my... I hope there's a gift shop because i got a fiver. This is going to be amazing. <laughs> Get downstairs. And my neighbor, my neighbor's just a girl that I go to school with, but her mum's there, and her mum is just crying her fucking eyes out, like bawling. And I'm there like, oh, that's fucking weird. All right, here we go. <laughs> Gonna go to school, and they're like, no, you'll need to, you need to just go home for a bit. And I was like, no, fucking, I'll see you at school. I'm just gonna don't want to miss the bus, fucking museum. And uh, they're like, go home. And I walk across the road, and I get into my house, and I walk into my living room, and my whole family's there. Mother, father, grandparents, other grandparents, aunts, uncles, all sitting around this room. No sister. And I'm there like, well, it's definitely not my birthday. <laughs> I can narrow that down. And I look at my mother, and she's just tears, just distraught. My father's there. She's a big stoic man, and he's also fucking distraught. And they look at me, and they go, your sister's dead. She died. And people often talk about how people accept death, especially at such a young age. And uh, my weirdest thing about the whole experience is I still remember it as a nine-year-old. I didn't have the emotions in my head now to deal with it. So I just remember that time, just collapsed to my floor. Oh, my God, my sister's dead. Down, I start crying. That sets the rest of the family off. We're all having a big fucking cry. It's just really shit. And after about 10 minutes, so I wipe my eyes, looking around, and we're all just distraught. And I go, well, going to go to the fucking museum now. Um, 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 I'm assuming you'll all be here when I get back. <laughs> and, I, and I go to leave, and they're like, you're not going to school. And I'm like, I fucking am, like museum. And they're like, you're not, you get the week off school. And I'm like, I mean, that's a, still a bit of a shit trade, but okay, I'll deal with it. And so I'm at home for the weekend, people are coming in and out, family members, friends, neighbors, just crying and doing all this sort of stuff. And I just remember being bored out of my fucking mind just because all the adults were, and this is the moment my mother said she knew I was going to be a comedian because I couldn't handle it I just started going around and I had to make people laugh now that's not why she says that she knew I was going to be a comedian not because I was funny but because even when someone's dead I still need to be the centre of attention that's how terrible my fucking ego is so as the week goes on it's getting closer to the sort of funeral day and I uh, get to go to the funeral but they decide I'm not allowed to go to the, uh, the ceremony bit, like the sitting down when it's all up there, because I'm, I'm fucking, I'll just talk shit about nothing. People will be sad, and I'll be like, have you seen Power Rangers? Just shut the fuck up. <laughs> and, uh, but it gets the day, so it's, we're going to go to the actual bit where we sort of uh, purr into the ground. And I walk out the front door of my house, and the hearse is there. And I'm nine years old, and I walk out with my mother, my father, and I see this hearse, and I'm like, fucking limo! And they're like, it's not a limo. And I'm like, fucking limo! And they're like, it's not a limo. And I'm like, it's a fucking limo. And I'm losing my mind, because I get to go in a limo. It's not a limo, it's a hearse. And I'm in the limo with them, being like, this limo is shit. Like, I've watched rap music, this isn't normally it. I don't see... There's no storage anywhere to be... Well, there's, there's one bit of storage, but it's full. Oh, is she your sister? Shut the fuck up. Uh, <laughs> and I'm nine years old, and I'm on my way to my sister's funeral. And we're getting up there, and it's a rainy day, and we get to the, uh, it's the fucking graveyard, and everyone's sort of there. And I remember seeing my teachers, they attended, 
and I was nine and I'd never seen my teachers outside of school, so I was losing my shit. I was just like, I'm waving, and they're like, stop fucking waving. This is not, <laughs> this is not where we wave. And I'm like, yay! And they're like, and I'm like, I've done my homework. They're like, it doesn't matter, you're okay. You don't need to do your homework, you tiny little sociopath. <laughs> it's not necessary. And then it's, and then it's the moment where it becomes real, where my family are there and they sort of put her uh, there in the carrier and they put her into the crowd. my whole family are crying and it's that thing that sort of, and even at nine I was sort of like this is, you know, okay, this is going to be a weird sort of situation for uh, a while now, but the, wor- the reason I realised it was weird, and this is my problem with uh, death, I don't mind death itself the reason death sucks isn't just because a person leaves the earth it's because everyone around you reacts differently around you, that's what makes death so scary, if everyone just acted normal like, like, oh, that sucks, but hey, here we go. You'll be fine. But it was because all the adults in my life who normally made me laugh just became these quiet, somber, sad people. And that's how I now react to death. Like, I react the way I would want to be. Like, I'll make jokes, and I'll still be a dick. And that's what makes me laugh, and it helps people through it. Uh, for example, my flatmate and my best friend, uh, her uh, father died last year. Now, me and her have a very interesting relationship in that we're horrible to each other because um, it's fun. And her father died. Now, it, I, she told me, and it was obviously that first sort of bit we hugged and I sort of was like, it didn't say sorry, never say sorry. I always hate that when people would say, I'm sorry. And here's my, I like to do it now whenever I mention to people that I have a uh, dead sister and their reaction is like, I'm sorry. I'm like, why did you do it? Uh, <laughs> Just like to watch how uncomfortable they get of like, we found the guy! And <laughs> because saying sorry is the worst thing you can t- say to someone, because you're now making me feel bad for making you feel bad. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I fucking told you, but just, just the best thing you can say is it sucks. That sucks, that's awful. So when my friend's dad died, I went, that sucks, that's terrible, and your life is going to be different but I'll know you'll get through it, and I'm here if you need me to be. She's like, that's exactly what I needed to hear, which was, to me, was code for, make all the jokes you want. So, <laughs> and I, no, no, and this is between friends. This is me and I have this very close relationship, and I'm out there, and the first joke I make, and this, is, this was the test, this was the how far can I, and, mm, okay. <laughs> so we're upstairs, me and my other flatmate were upstairs, and we're laughing, we're laughing, we're laughing, and she comes upstairs, and she's fine. And she's like, what's going on? We're like, it's fine. She goes, why am I missing something? And I, without missing a beat, went, a father figure. (laughs) (laughs) And she just went, you fucking asshole. (laughs) But laughed, howled with laughter. And I was like, good, there we go. And I obviously, after talking to her over the course of the rest of the evening, we had the emotional connection that we needed to have. But... She says it herself, I gave her the best reaction because I was the only person that was the same. Everyone else was monocoddling her, cuddling her, making sure she was okay, and that's not normally how they react when you're, I'm always an asshole to her, so even when she's sad, I need to be an asshole to her because I'm a good friend. <laughs> but, it, <laughs> but after all this, and I'm like, I'll, you know, I'll let you let me know when I can start making jokes unless they're really funny, in which case I'm going to say them anyway and you'll just have to get over it. And uh, we ordered pizza. And uh, it's obviously my treat because, you know, her dad's dead. It's the least I could do. <laughs> it's, that's fair. Like, it would be really, like, if she's just sitting there, I'd be like, do you have a, give me ten, give me ten quid. That my dad's dead. Yeah, I know, but he probably left you stuff, so ten quid. Um, 
So I pick up the pizza, the guy comes to the door, I pick up the pizza and hand it to Jean. I pick up the Coke and hand it to her. And I turn around and she goes, you're a fucking asshole. And that's true. But I was unaware of how she arrived at this information this time. I was like, yes. And she stood there and she had the bottle of Coke and it said, share a Coke with dad. But what was worse, if you want to know what mine and her relationship was, her reaction was, and oh my God, this is funny, her reaction is, you're an asshole. As if I phoned the fucking pizza guy. <laughs> it was like, hey, you got any, like, stuff there with the word dad on it? <laughs> yeah, just throw it in, yeah. Yeah, 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 dead or dad, like, just add an E. Uh, or you don't have any of the gold balls? Just spell out in pepperoni on the top of the pizza. That's, no, she'll understand. <laughs> but that's how I think you should react today for that level of humor. And even my family, even my mother, my father, who lost a child, still to this day laugh about some of the stuff that happened. Uh, it was the year after my sister's uh, death. It's the anniversary. And all these fucking flowers start coming and obviously like commiserations and people saying so sorry and just loads they all start coming funny again we're all reading through the messages and my mum starts howling with laughter just uncontrollable laughter and me and my dad are like well okay that's a fucking weird thing to do when you've your daughter's flowers are there for the grave but okay however you're going to handle this and she hands it over to my father my father starts laughing his ass off and I, they pass it to me, and I look at it, and I'm confused. I don't laugh. I don't get why it's funny. It just says, uh, to my darling Sarah, none of my family's name, uh, I love you so much. These have been the best four years of my life. I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with you. <laughs> Some of you are there. So, clearly, this had been sent to the wrong house. So I'm like, oh, so somebody's sent the wrong flowers to us. And my mum and I go, no, no, no. That, not only does that mean we get their flowers. <laughs> That means that some woman <laughs> on her anniversary has <laughs> got flowers that just say, I regret this day. <laughs> Every year I cry and I don't know if I'll ever be able to get through it because this is truly the worst day of all of her lives. <laughs> She's just there going, you fucking asshole. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and now we go from dance loss to Dave Ross. And now we go from dance loss to David Ross. And now we go from dance loss to Dave Ross. And now we go from dance loss to David Ross. Yeah! Oh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Whoops. I like whoops. Please always whoop. Um, hey. hey, yeah. Uh, I'm like this all the time. Uh, always whoop. Uh, nice to meet you all. Hi. Uh, I, uh, I'll talk about my parents. I, um, I have a really distant relationship with my parents. And it's weird because I'm an only child, first of all. Also, though, my dad was in the Navy my whole life, so we moved every three years. So in a very real way, it was just us for 17 years. 
but still somehow, I don't know, we're not close. It's bizarre to me, I don't understand it. We don't talk very much, we talk like four times a year on the phone, we forget each other's birthdays. They've never ever visited me once in LA and I've lived here for 15 years. I see them once a year over Christmas, maybe, you know? Not every year, sometimes it's once every two years. It's a bummer, it bums me out. The biggest bummer is that my parents have never seen me do stand-up comedy. And that's nuts, if you know me. Because stand-up is like what I am. It's where I get everything I have. Like, really, I mean, granted, I was like a fuck up and a fuck off and just a fuck all the way <laughs> until I was 26. And then I found stand-up and I, like, I don't know, I became this other thing. I found confidence in it and I never had that and girls liked me and I would never really had that. I worked really hard and I'd never done that before. It was everything to me. I did it every day. To know me is to know me as a stand-up. And so the fact that my parents have never seen it is like just crazy. My mom watched a video of mine once a few years ago. And uh, when I asked her what she thought of it, she said, oh, well, David, you know, I think I would like anything that you do. <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, but did you, okay, did you have any specific opinions about the bits and then she literally said well you know i think i need to watch it again because the whole time i was watching i just thought this was your way of telling me that you're gay <laughs> and i'm like not gay and my mom doesn't care she's like advocates for gay marriage in Colorado. so she they just don't know me is the point so two years ago i had just turned 30 and i was visiting my parents over christmas they live in Pueblo, Colorado, which is two hours south of Denver. And in Denver, Colorado is maybe the best comedy show in the world. It's called The Grolics. It's, uh, yeah, it's incredible. It's run by these three amazing comedians that I love. It's at this place called The Bug Theater. They fill, it's once a month. They fill it up with this incredible crowd. And just it's just amazing. And I got booked on it. For the first, I was like, ha, this is incredible. I'm doing this amazing show in front of this amazing crowd. My parents can come and they can see me be amazing at this thing. And they can stop thinking I'm a piece of shit or whatever. Uh, and I especially wanted my dad to come because, you know, like, you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> dad, like that whole concept. Every dude, also every girl, but like every dude is like, Dad. Uh, just once a year, I just watch Big Fish and just fucking cry the whole time. I'm like, stand-up comedy is my fish. Uh, I want them to come. And so I told my dad, there's this great show up in Denver. It's tonight. You should come. And my dad literally says this back to me. What? I'm not going to do that. I was like, all right. Well, that's just uh, my dream for you to go. But all right, that's fine. It was especially weird because my dad was giving me a fucking ride there. <laughs> but he's, you know, old or whatever. And he had to get up in the morning. And he couldn't stay up late. And that's fine. I was like, that's fine. And so my parents drove me two hours north to Denver, dropped me off at this theater. We said our goodbyes. They turned around and drove back. I walked into that theater 
and fucking murdered. Like, I mean, how could I not? I was like, ah, I have no one. And I, uh, <laughs> I just walk, I'm just fucking slay. Like, it was ridiculous. Everyone, people were like, I had never had a set like that before in my entire life. They ended up putting it on an album later, the recording. Like, it was ridiculous. I walk into the green room, and all the comics are, like, high-fiving me in the heart, you know? And I was like, yeah, thank you. Dope, dope, dope. I'm the best. And I, like, uh, but my parents weren't there. It was weird. It was, a, uh, it was terrible. I, and great. You know? I don't know. It was, it was an odd night. And I had another show the next day. I was just going to stay there. So I, I uh, after the show, I, like... Bye, 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 bye. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I went and got a hotel in the neighborhood and, uh, you know, got uh, absolutely shit-faced by myself and uh, passed out. And I woke up in the morning just feeling strange. Because it's like a, (laughs) you know, it's a very strange place to be, to be sure that you're good at stand-up comedy, but not sure if your parents like you. (laughs) I was like, like all this energy that I didn't know what to do with and I just had a show at night. So I was like, I'm gonna walk around. (laughs) I'm gonna gonna walk, yeah, yeah. Cause I romanticize everything. And I didn't think about the fact that it was winter in Denver, which is a mile in the air. It's so cold and I didn't like, I, I Google mapped where I was going but not very well, apparently, because I had to walk two miles to get to that part of town through the freezing cold, just like, uh, and like, I don't know if you've been to Denver in the winter, but it's just like, just like rubble and snow. And like, there are, I guess, buildings and stuff, but it just seems like everything's just like a war zone. It's like a war zone with bars in it, you know? Dudes with beards, actually dudes with beards laughing, and then dudes with beards homelessing or whatever. So I walked through this like weird like hipster war zone covered in snow that was like beautiful and broken just like me. All right. Uh, I get to this area and uh, I find a warm bar and I'm like, oh, I'm going to, like I said, I romanticize everything. So I'm like, yes, I've been walking through the snow and I've arrived at my destination and I'll say hello to the barkeep and order a dark beer but I didn't drink so I ordered a beer just to be allowed in there and then started feeling weird after a half hour and left and walked out into the cold again and then just did that like seven times until finally I've like wasted like 50 bucks on beer just to have a warm place to sit I was like this is ridiculous what is wrong with I'm absolutely insane clearly right now I'm finding a Starbucks Coffee and internet. Hell yeah, dude. And uh, I, uh, I find a Starbucks. It's like a mile away. Pick myself up and I get to walking. And as I'm walking, I come across this brick wall that was like three stories tall. And like, clearly it was a building, but to me it was just a brick wall. It's just a brick wall, this big imposing brick wall. There was no door, there were no windows, there were no stairs, there were no fire escapes. It was just like there to scare me. And, uh, There's a boy leaning against the brick wall. Just a white, gaunt kid. Couldn't have been older than 18. Skinny, just skinny and white. That's what I remember about him. Just He was like, yeah, white. He had this floppy dread sitting on his shoulder, smoking a cigarette, just wearing a T-shirt and jeans in the freezing cold. And as I'm walking by, he goes, hey, man, can I have a dollar? And I was like, yeah, I, I, I like to help. I should help. I'll give him a dollar. And I gave him a dollar. 
And he's like, thanks. I started walking away. And he goes, hey, man, can I have another dollar? And I was like, what the fuck? And, uh, and he says, I, I want to buy some gloves. I was like, oh, it's Christmas. I think I'm a good person. I should, I'm going to help this guy get some gloves, sure. So I gave him another dollar. And he was like, man, thank you so much. And I was like, you're welcome. And started walking away. And he goes, hey, man, where are you going? I turned around and I was like, Starbucks? And then he says, can I walk with you? And I was like, immediately, no. You know, that was my first response. But then it's like, this is a kid in the cold. I don't know where he came from. He's probably alone. He would like to talk to someone. You know, I should, sure. Yes. Yeah, man. Yeah, let's walk. I'm going like, a, it's like a mile that way. Sure. And he was like, cool. And we started walking. Silent for a second. And then I'm like, uh, well, what, what were you doing? What's up with you today? And he goes, oh, I just got out of jail. And I was like, okay. <laughs> what, well, what were you doing there? And he goes, oh, that's the jail. And he points at the wall. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> I'm curious. Why were you in jail? What happened? This is the story he tells me. Well, uh, I've been doing heroin for four or five years, and uh, I'm dating this girl. We've been dating for four or five years, and she also does heroin. I steal things to get money for heroin, and she's in nursing school. One day, about a year ago, I got home, and the cops were in my house, and they'd found a quarter ounce of heroin, and it was my girlfriend's, but I said it was mine because she's in nursing school. She has a real future. I don't want her to ruin her own life, so I took the fall. I said it was my heroin, and they sent me to jail. I was like, oh, my God, that's, that's incredible. You're the sweetest man. And he was like, yeah, and you know, I was young, so they gave me like a little bit of a chance, and, uh, and so I was only in there for a few months, and now I'm out. And I cleaned up in jail, and my girlfriend cleaned up out of jail, and uh, she has a little bit of money saved that she's going to lend me, and I have a friend who works at this like mechanic school, and he said that I can get in, and it's like a six-month program, and then after that, I'll know how to fix these cars, and I can like start working at another friend's shop, and then we can save up money and eventually get a house, and then we can have kids. And I'm seriously almost about to cry <laughs> saying this to you guys right now. And I was like, that's amazing. I, that's so incredible. I can't, you're the sweetest, you're the sweetest man. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> like yelling at this kid on the street. You're the sweetest man. You're sweet. <laughs> and so I decided to relate to the kid because I used to do heroin for a little while. I, I never got really deep into it. Uh, that is to say I did it for a year and a half but I smoked it. I never injected it. I never got into the needle thing. Some of my friends did. And I staved it off out of paranoia and a, and a few other things. And I thank God that I did because I'm a stand-up comic and who knows if I would have found this thing that made me who I am had I become a heroin addict, you know? And so I told him that. And I was like, you're incredible, dude. You did it. You made it out. Good for you. I made it out too. It's 
I know yours is, has to be way harder, but I, I used to do that stuff, and I know how it feels. I know how it makes you feel. I know how it can convince you that being on it for the rest of your life is the only way you could be happy. I know that it can make you feel like you finally are a real person when you're on it. I know how it makes you feel. And I also have watched it ruin people's lives, and I've, I got out of it, and I'm away, and I am now proud of myself, and I love myself, and I, I, good for you. You made the right choice. You did it. And he goes, do you still do heroin? And I was like, what? No, I don't. I, don't. I just, and he was like, because I have some. <laughs> and then he literally goes like this. And coughs up a pad of black tar heroin like three inches long. And he's like, and I was just about to go shoot up under the bridge over there. I like looked at it and I looked at him and I was like, I gotta go. And I started walking the other way. And he was like, what the fuck, man? I thought we were walking together. And I was like, I can't be around that stuff, man. It'll ruin my life. I love it too much. I can't, I'm sorry. I, I gotta go. I'll see you later. And you should not do that shit. You should throw it in the garbage and you should do what you told me you were gonna do because that is going to destroy you. And he was like, no, but I'm, and I was like, I have to go. Bye. He mumbled some things and I walked and after about 10 feet, I ran. And then I ran faster, full speed. I'm wearing a backpack, full speed for like a mile. I, like, <laughs> I mean, it was more a metaphor than anything else, but I had to get the fuck away from the heroin, you know? I get to the Starbucks, I sit down, I'm catching my breath, and it occurs to me, oh yeah, of course I have a distant relationship with my parents. I used to do heroin. <laughs> and yeah, I never told them that I did heroin, I never went to rehab, they never found out, but I had to push them away from me for years so they wouldn't find out that I did all these drugs. They didn't know any of my friends, they didn't know anything about my life. Yeah, they're distant. I fucking created that distance. And so there's that small upside of meeting that kid. And, and I still haven't told them that I did heroin or that I wish there wasn't this distance. I wish you were closer or that I think it's my fault because I don't know how. But I do tell the story uh, live because I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. Like maybe they'll hear. Thank you.
That is all for this week, folks. This is the Black Angels behind me now. Listen, Risk is live in New York on the 28th of May. We have Ray Christian, Gail Thomas, Eddie Brill, and Ann Thomas. That's a hell of a show. On the 28th, we're also in Los Angeles at the Nerdist Showroom. We've got Greg Fitzsimmons. Peyton Clarkson, we've got Ben Garant of The State and Reno 911, and more. And then on the 28th, we're also (laughs) in San Francisco. Wow. So on that night, we will be in three cities at once. We're teaming up with body storytelling once again in San Francisco. The theme on the 28th is taboo. And then the next night, the 29th of May, we are in San Francisco, once again, a whole different show with body storytelling, and that one is Secrets. Secrets is the second one that we're doing there in San Francisco. We've also got a storytelling workshop on the 30th, on Saturday the 30th, so uh, go to the risk-show.com slash tour page to learn about all of that, and then don't forget that on the 25th of July, we're in Reno, Nevada. There's also a workshop happening that night, but come on and see the Reno show and pitch us your stories if you live anywhere near Reno for the 25th of July. Don't forget to check out all our educational opportunities at our school, thestorystudio.org. And if you wish to donate to help us keep all of this running, go to MaximumFun.org slash donate to become a a member or make a one-time contribution. And be sure to earmark it for risk. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Risk Show. On Twitter, I'm at TheKevinAllison. And it really makes a difference if you follow and join the conversation. And that about wraps it up, folks. Today's the day. Take a risk. This is the end of the episode. 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 This